The way Jim Bridger told it, the odds were overwhelming. A hundred Cheyenne were in hot pursuit of the frontiersmen, mounted on fresh horses. He had no hope of outrunning them, and no chance of fighting his way free. All he could do was attempt to elude. Bridger plunged into a canyon and made for the timber, the Cheyenne close behind, screaming for his prized scalp. Arrows sliced the air, trade muskets boomed as the warriors sought to bring him down. The canyon narrowed, its sheer walls closing in. The mountain man could not escape. He turned at bay, determined to sell his life dearly. At this point in the tale, Bridger took a pause. His audience would lean in, holding their breath, and finally somebody inevitably would ask the question, What happened, Mr. Bridger? Well, he'd say, they killed me. That kind of good-humored garrulousness made Jim Bridger well-suited amongst the mountain men to make a successful transition from the fur trade into what amounts to a service industry, provisioning immigrants who were beginning to trickle across the Great Plains and across the mountains as the glory days of the Rocky Mountain fur trade came to a close. But Bridger, of course, had a lot more to offer than just some amusing tall tales. His uncanny sense of geography enabled him to offer advice on routes and travel conditions. And as the 1840s rolled into the 1850s, his services would be in high demand to guide a growing number of expeditions that sought to survey and catalog the, the Western possessions of the United States. So with the rendezvous over and the beaver trade in decline... In 1841, Bridger established a small fort in southwestern Wyoming, what's now southwestern Wyoming, in partnership with his fellow mountain man, Henry Frab. The mountain men had not entirely given up on the fur trade, and the fort was originally uh, conceived to supply, as a supply depot and a base of operations for trappers who still were trying to make a living in the beaver streams of the western mountains. Built on Shoshone land, it would also serve as a trading post for that people who brought buffalo robes into trade for brass kettles and steel knives and beads and paint and other items that enhanced their quality of life. The post was remote and very exposed, and the Shoshone's enemies, the Lakota and the Cheyenne, were not happy to see it there. They raided the fort on a number of occasions, killing Shoshone who camped nearby and then they attacked a buffalo hunting party led by Frab, and in a day-long firefight, uh, Bridger's partner was killed. So Bridger then partnered up with uh, Louis Vasquez, an entrepreneurial younger son of a prominent family of St. Louis Spaniards. They moved the fort slightly from its previous location and then went into trade in earnest. The year 1843 marked the beginning of what would be called the, the Great Migration, the year that the first major surge of immigrants took the Oregon Trail across the continent to the promised lands of the Pacific Northwest and California. And Bridger and Vasquez relocated their post slightly for a third and final time in order to, to kind of optimize their position to um, intercept those immigrants on their on their way. Fort Bridger was well poised on the immigration route at a point where 
the travelers were, were weary and needed resupply, fresh oxen, blacksmithing services, and counsel on the road ahead, which led through the mountains and, uh, and across the, the deserts before it hit uh, Oregon and California. Bridger biographer Jerry Ensler details what in many ways was a pretty idyllic way of life for the old mountaineer. They built two double log houses, each 40 feet long, one for the Bridgers and one for Vasquez. They also built a blacksmith shop so immigrants could shoe horses and repair wheel rims and a separate room for trading. They constructed a stockade by setting hewn logs upright side by side and attached a corral for horses and other livestock. The buildings had no wooden floors, just packed dirt sunk slightly below ground level. Archaeological excavations have identified the location of the log houses, blacksmith shop, trading post, and fort perimeter. Artifacts dating to the Bridger-Vasquez period or earlier include a two-real silver coin made in Mexico City. Archaeological evidence shows that women were essential to the trading and trapping economy at the fort, and they had a significant presence within the fort itself. Women tanned hides and made clothing, ground flour, and did much of the actual trading on the perimeter of the fort. Excavations have discovered manos to grind food, sewing needles, hook and eyes, thimbles, decorative buttons, shoe parts, and prepared leather. Residents at Fort Bridger depended on Native Americans for food. Indian rice grass was found in one of the storage pits within Bridger's trading post. Pollen and floral analysis and other studies have helped document the changing landscape at Fort Bridger. At one time, the location was a wet meadow, but by 1843, the meadow had been replaced by a grassland marked by sage and greasewood. Cottonwoods, pines, and junipers grew nearby, which, was, which were probably cut down to build the fort. The grass near Fort Bridger was overgrazed, often leading to blowing sand and dust. Bridger chose to live frugally, housing Cora, that's his wife, Felix, his son, and himself in two rooms. His fort was much simpler than Fort Laramie or Fort Union. He lived the life he wanted, dwelling among the Shoshones and sending whatever money he made to increase his account. Fort Bridger was his home in the wild, and it allowed him to roam several times a year, knowing that his wife and children would be safe and comfortable with their people. For more than a century, some historians have marked a distinct period of exploration dating from the expedition of Lewis and Clark in 1804-06 to the establishment of Fort Bridger on the Oregon Trail in 1843. Jim Bridger played a significant role in that period and the next as well. Life in the mountains was still precarious and very tough. And in uh, 1846, tragedy struck when Bridger's wife Cora was bitten by a wolf. According to family lore, she suffered from rabies and, and disappeared. There's no detail as to how this horrific incident played out, whether she went, just wandered into the wilderness to die, uh, which would have been a very slow and agonizing death, or whether she was put out of what must have been very acute misery. And, uh, you know, frontier life just held many, many dangers and terrors and was especially brutal for women. A mountain man in, in Bridger's position couldn't really function properly without a wife, and so in the way of the mountains, Bridger soon united with a Ute woman named White Singing Bird, and Jim would call her Chapita. 
She died shortly after giving birth to a daughter named Virginia in 1848, and Bridger would marry again uh, to a Shoshone woman who he called Mary. Throughout the 1840s, this trickle of immigration grew, and Bridger and Vasquez's business grew along with it. Being uh, still a wandering mountain man, Bridger often left his partner Vasquez to handle the trading while he explored the country, which was his great life's passion. Bridger made at least one expedition to California, and in 1849, he led trappers back into the old, dangerous Blackfeet country to the northwest, despite the dangers inherent in that, and despite the prospect of really scratchy returns in a severely depressed fur market. And uh, you kind of have to suspect that the economics wasn't the driving factor in this expedition, that uh, maybe Bridger was just trying to, to relive the glory days a little bit. And who could blame him, right? One of Bridger's men, a trapper named Charles Choquette, uh, left a, a, an account of an epic tangle with the Blackfeet near the Great Falls of the Missouri River. Ensler's biography describes the encounter. In spring 1849, they trapped the Muscleshell River, the Snowy Mountains, the Judith River, the Big Belt Mountains, and Great Falls on the Missouri, where they spotted a large village of Blackfeet, 400 men according to Choquette. Knowing an attack was likely, Bridger ordered double guards to watch the camp that evening and took his turn at midnight. At first daylight, the Blackfeet charged and Bridger hollered, don't get excited, boys, and be sure of your aim. Take it easy now. The trappers repelled the Blackfeet charge, but men on both sides were wounded. At the second charge, more men fell. According to Choquette, One great tall fellow had his horse shot out from under him, and when he struck the ground, he made for Bridger with a wicked-looking war club in his right hand and a knife in the other. When they met, the Indian aimed a blow at him with his war club, but Bridger caught it on the barrel of his rifle, and it flew away off to one side. Then the Indian tried to knife him, and Bridger just punched him with his rifle barrel so the fellow couldn't close in. And all of a sudden he hit him square in the forehead and smashed his skull as cool and easy as could be. The Blackfeet charged once more with little effect, and then left. After this trapping expedition, Bridger returned to his fort to deal with what had become a flood of immigrants. In 1847, fewer than 5,000 immigrants had made the trek across the continent. In 1849, there were 25,000. And the trigger, of course, was gold. That year of 49 changed the West profoundly. You cannot exaggerate the impact of the California gold rush. Thousands of people made the overland journey through deserts hot and mountains cold, as the great Dave Alvin song, King of California, describes it. The rush was a great commercial opportunity for Bridger and Vasquez. Ensler describes their, their division of labor. While Vasquez, the trader, was mainly interested in sales, Bridger, the explorer, reveled in talking with immigrants about the routes ahead. He stayed at Fort Bridger and laid down the route for many travelers, readily grabbing a charcoal and drawing the path right on his door. To immigrant William Kelly, he pointed out a new line that would cut off 30 miles 
but then warned him it had not yet been attempted with wagons. He didn't think they should run the risk. Kelly remembered that Bridger, quote, had more experience as a mountaineer than any other and was in the habit of leaving his partner as the home manager and roaming through the fastness of the wilderness, by which means he became intimate with every practicable route or locality. Several felt that they had been steered wrong by lesser men, and one traveler wrote that almost every man who tried to answer questions proves himself a fool or a liar, concluding that they were asses, asses all. But Bridger was reliable and loved to describe the route. During the 1850s, Bridger spent more and more time away from his trading post, serving as a guide for military and scientific expeditions that were surveying the western ten- territories with a, you know, a new sense of urgency to kind of knit the country together, just as it was falling into sectional strife over slavery. Uh, in a sense, you know, Bridger was li- reliving the days when he scouted for the fur brigades. The, the job was very similar, and the same imperatives were in play. The, the need to find the best and easiest routes for a very large party of men to travel in all kinds of weather, finding good grazing and campsites. Bridger was in his element, and, and he looked the part. He, he was the very figure of a frontier scout, and his fringe buckskins are actually usually antelope, made by his Shoshone wife, a wide-brimmed hat. At this point in his career, he was toting a, a heavy hawk and rifle, with which he delighted in the mountain man's art of making meat. And he was broad-shouldered and fit in the prime of his life. The only thing that detracted from the kind of classic robust picture was a swelling in his neck. And Bridger had developed a goiter, probably from lack of iodine in his years of drinking from mountain streams. And the swelling gave him one of his multitude of nicknames, which was Big Throat. While the expeditions of the 1850s provided good employment, things were far from ideal for for Bridger. He had some real trouble with his neighbors, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. Bridger's clash with the Mormons, who began to emigrate to the Great Salt Lake country in 1847, would shake his life to the core and ultimately force him to abandon Fort Bridger. It's been really difficult for me to pin down exactly what the source was of Mormon leader Brigham Young's hostility to Bridger. In their early encounters, Bridger played his usual role, advising the immigrants on the route, the landscape, prospects of the country. But very quickly, Young became suspicious of Bridger, and his suspicions curdled into paranoia. And he once told his followers, I believe I know that old Bridger is death on us. Now, Young and his followers came by paranoia, Honestly, the whole reason they headed west in the first place was that their headquarters in Missouri had become dangerously inhospitable. The founder of the faith, Joseph Smith, had been murdered by a lynch mob. So they had reason to fear and and reject what they called the Gentile world, which had rejected and attacked them. But it's still puzzling as to why Jim Bridger in particular drew Young's 
suspicion and and really ardent hostility. Shortly after the arrival of the Mormon pioneers, the their colonies were incorporated into the United States uh, through the, the the session at the end of uh, the Mexican War. Young petitioned the U.S. Congress to create what he wanted to call the state of Deseret. And in the Compromise of 1850, the federal government instead carved out Utah Territory, and Young was made governor. As both governor and president of the dominant church, Young was in charge of both religious and economic matters. And uh, it seems clear, you know, speaking of economic matters, that the um, part of Young's hostility to, to Bridger and, and actually to other mountain men as well was a hostility to competition. Brigham Young was an empire builder and an autocrat, and he was not inclined to settle for a status quo where Gentile mountaineers controlled ferries and lucrative trade right on the doorstep of the promised land that he had found for his people. He also seems to have believed that, that Bridger had the ear of, of federal officials who were hostile to the church. And uh, Young was convinced or convinced himself that Bridger was arming the Utes who were, they believed, poised to wipe his settlements out. It's entirely possible that Bridger was supplying powder and ball to his Indian friends and clients, but it seems pretty ridiculous to think that he was supplying them on a military scale, supplying them for, for hunting and, and, uh, and for trade. Yes. But I don't think that, that there, there is any evidence at all that he was arming them to take military action against the Mormon settlements, even if they were so inclined. And there's no real evidence that that was the case either. Bridger tried to persuade Brigham Young that there was no foundation to these rumors and that he was, in fact, a good neighbor. And he had, since he was illiterate, had somebody write a letter that he addressed to the president of the Salt Lake Valley. And Bridger said, I am truly sorry that you should believe any reports about me having said that I would bring any Indians or any number of Indians upon you or any of your community. Such a thought never entered my head, and I trust to your knowledge and good sense to know if a person is desirous of living in good friendship with his neighbors, he would not undertake such a mad project. Believe, Mr. President, I am desirous of maintaining an amicable friendship with the people in the valley, and should you want a favor at my hands at any time... I shall always think myself happy in doing it for you. From your friend and well-wisher, James Bridger. Protestations of neighborliness were not going to budge Brigham Young, though. In August of 1853, he sent out a posse to raid Fort Bridger and to arrest Jim and confiscate arms and spiritous liquors he was supposedly using to arouse the Utes. A Utah territorial militia of 48 men led by William H. Kimball moved on Fort Bridger from Salt Lake City. Uh, Bridger got warning and he escaped before the, the posse arrived. 
the posse found no supply of Indian ammunition, but they did find a fine supply of whiskey and rum, which, in a quote that I just love, they destroyed in small doses. Bill Hickman, who was sheriff and tax collector for Green River County, which is the Utah Territory County where Fort Bridger was located, recalled that the sheriff, most of his officers, the doctor and chaplain of the company, all aided in carrying out the orders and worked so hard day and night that they were exhausted, not being able to stand up. The Mormons bought Fort Bridger from Vasquez in 1855 for $8,000 over Bridger's protests. He never really recognized the validity of the sale. Basically run out of his home base, Bridger moved his family east to Westport, Missouri, which is now a, a neighborhood in Kansas City, and that would become his new base of operations. And he would retire there when his days in the mountains were over. So Bridger technically didn't live in the Rocky Mountains anymore, but uh, he spent most of of his time there over the the next decade and and more. Uh, Westport was really just his family's home and, like I said, a base of, of operations. He continued to guide hunting expeditions, surveying expeditions, and military expeditions through the 1850s and 60s. Bridger would return to the site of Fort Bridger with the U.S. Army in 1857 when the federal government decided that it was time to impose its will and authority on the Saints in Utah. And the conflict over the sovereignty and and authority over Utah Territory briefly became something of a, of a national craze. And some U.S. politicians and authorities actually kind of sought to gin up a moral panic about Mormon polygamy and other practices to distract the public because at this time the war clouds were gathering and uh, the U.S. was on the doorstep of civil war. And the brand new Republican Party in 1856 created a presidential platform that was pledged to eradicate, quote, the twin relics of barbarism, polygamy, and slavery. So this U.S. federal expedition into Utah Utah Territory could have turned into a a real bloodbath, a, a guerrilla conflict in very rugged landscape. But even though Brigham Young was prone to violent rhetoric and was very much an authoritarian, and he did have a messianic vision, he wasn't that kind of a zealot. Young was a pragmatist. He accepted being removed as governor of Utah Territory, and the feds reasserted federal authority over the territory, which paved the way for Utah to eventually become a state. A man named Solomon Hale left a description of Bridger during the period of the Utah War or the Mormon Campaign, whichever you you prefer to call it. He spoke fluently and with great earnestness, remembered Hale. One was readily impressed with the sincerity and honesty of the man. 
He was a man of character, embodying great courage and leadership. Very naturally, he partook of the nature of his environment and life on the frontier, but he impressed me very strongly as being honest and dependable and a leader among men. He came readily into the association of big men, and he was given by men of prominence courtesies and considerations that are not usually extended to men of ordinary rank and character. The ultimate outcome of the Utah War wasn't really all that important to Bridger. Um, Fort Bridger had been burned down during all of this kerfuffle, and it wasn't home anymore anyway. So the scout just moved on, as scouts do. The last major endeavor of Bridger's career in the mountains was triggered by yet another gold rush, this one after a big strike on Grasshopper Creek in Montana in 1862. Immigrants began to peel off from the Oregon Trail and head northwest into the gold fields, and they were heading right across land recently conquered from the Crows by the expanding Lakota Empire. And these were some imperial horsemen who were not pleased, and a bloody conflict loomed. Bridger tried to avert it. In 1864, he blazed a trail which would become known as the Bridger Trail up the west side of the Bighorn Mountains. The better-known Bozeman Trail ran along the east slope of the Bighorns, right through the Powder River country of what's now east-central Wyoming, which was the heart of the Lakota's hunting lands. Traveling on the west side put uh, the, the miners that were headed to the gold fields in Crow territory, and the Crow were historically much less hostile to Americans. You may remember our comment on that uh, in the first part of this podcast. Um, they, were, they would steal horses, but uh, they, they seldom got into mortal conflict with Americans. It was a much safer route, the Bridger Trail, but it didn't really catch on. And in 1866, right after the end of the Civil War, the U.S. Army decided to build a series of forts along the Bozeman Trail to protect the travelers to the gold fields. And Bridger signed on to be Chief of Scouts for Colonel Henry Carrington, who was the officer in charge of building those forts. And all of this would end very, very badly. Bridger tried to warn the army that they were provoking a very large and very militant coalition of Indians who would not give up the Powder River country without a hell of a fight. They didn't listen. And that begs the question, why would you hire the most experienced and respected guide and scout in the West, treat him as the equivalent of an army major, and then ignore his advice and warnings at every turn. Major James Van Vost, who was the post commandant at Fort Laramie in southeast Wyoming, perfectly articulated the, the prevailing attitude. I do not believe much of what Mr. Bridger says. He exaggerates about Indians. Well, no. Bridger knew that more than a thousand tribesmen were gathering in 1866 to resist the army's encroachment. Red Cloud, who was a very remarkable leader, was building a strong coalition out of really disparate and often pretty fractious bands of Lakota 
and adding in alliances with the Cheyenne and Arapaho. Bridger was nervous that Red Cloud had so much momentum that it would even pull in the Crows, and he and an old friend, the legendary Black Mountain man Jim Beckworth, made a diplomatic mission to the Crows, who were Beckworth's adopted people, as it turns out, and successfully kept them out of any future conflict. Beckworth, uh, by the way, elected to stay amongst the Crows, and he would die among them of an illness, an unspecified illness, in 1867. And Bridger, who by now, bear in mind, was no longer a young man, was really a remarkable whirlwind of activity. As Ensler notes, In less than two months, Bridger helped establish Fort C.F. Smith, fixed the ferry across the Bighorn, secured the loyalty of the Crows, and shortened the route to the gold fields near Virginia City by 20 miles, with another 30-mile reduction possible. He returned to Fort C.F. Smith on September 29th. On October 23rd, he rode east with several officers to report to Carrington, who needed his services at Fort Phil Kearney. Fort Phil Kearney would be sort of the focus of Red Cloud's insurgency, and uh, Bridger disliked the location of the fort, which is just outside Buffalo, Wyoming. It lies on low ground and could be put under observation at all times by Red Cloud's forces. Another key flaw was that it was a long ways from the timber resources in the Bighorns, which made woodcutting parties vulnerable to attack. And he also, Bridger, thought that uh, the Civil War era officers who were in command at the fort were clueless about Indian fighting. By the end of 1866, the the situation was, was really pretty dire along the Bozeman Trail. From July to November of 1866, the Indians had carried out 51 attacks along the Bozeman Trail and killed 91 soldiers and 58 civilians and had stolen a very large number of, of animals um, from horses to mules to, to cattle. And uh, in December, on December 21st, 1866, Red Cloud's forces lured 81 men under the command of Captain William Fetterman away from Fort Phil Kearney and into an ambush and rubbed them out to a man. Here's a description of that fight from my Frontier Partisans blog series on the Bozeman Trail War. The morning of December 21st, 1866, dawned chill and gray with a light covering of snow on the ground. As was the case on most days, the first command decision Colonel Henry Carrington had to make was whether or not to send out the wood train. There were two factors to consider. Would the woodcutters get caught in a winter storm? Would the Sioux attack them? One was an increasing seasonal risk, the other had been a constant hazard for months. Between the requirements of post-construction and the demand for firewood as temperatures plunged, Fort Phil Kearney had an insatiable appetite for the wood that could only come from the Bighorn foothills to the east. 
By mid-morning, it looked like the weather would hold for a bit, so Carrington gave his permission for the wagons of the wood train to head off to the pineries. Within an hour, the lookout, stationed on Pilot Knob directly behind the fort, threw up his signal flag. The wood train was under attack. The fort's garrison could hear the gunfire. Colonel Carrington ordered a relief column of infantry, and Captain William Judd Fetterman asserted the right to command it. In later years, Colonel Carrington would insist that he ordered Fetterman only to relieve the wood train and that under no circumstances should he cross Lodge Trail Ridge. He reiterated those orders to Lieutenant George Washington Grumman, who sallied forth with 27 cavalrymen and two civilians minutes after Fetterman's men marched through the gates. The colonel also remembered Lieutenant Grumman's actions in the deadly skirmish on December 6th and insisted that the cavalrymen stay with Fetterman. Quartermaster Captain Fred Brown was not going to miss out on his chance at grabbing a scalp, and he too rode out to join his friend Fetterman. Almost as soon as Fetterman left the fort, the troopers on Pilot Knob signaled that the attack on the wood train had ceased. The Indians had disengaged and were moving away across Piney Creek and up the ridge. Carrington watched, apparently unperturbed, as Fetterman, with Grumman's cavalry, advanced in a manner calculated to cut off the apparently retreating Indians. In his initial report on the action, Carrington wrote that Fetterman was moving wisely up the creek and along the southern slope of Lodge Trail Ridge with good promise of cutting off the Indians as they should withdraw. Carrington seems to at least tacitly approve of Fetterman taking the tactical initiative. The force, 81 strong, was the largest and strongest unit that had ever been deployed out of Fort Phil Kearney in pursuit of Indians, and it could reasonably expect to handle any force arrayed against it. Carrington returned to his quarters, and Fetterman and Grumman continued up and over Lodge Trail Ridge. Everything was going according to plan. The plan that Red Cloud, the Miniconjou Hump, and the Cheyenne Little Wolf had carefully laid out and tested over a span of weeks. A party of ten young warriors, two Cheyenne, two Arapaho, and two each from each of the Lakota bands, who had assembled to fight the soldiers, lured the soldiers up Lodge Trail Ridge. Years later, the Cheyenne warrior White Elk recalled watching the performance of the decoys, one in particular, a fellow Cheyenne named Big Nose, as he rode his black war pony back and forth across the ridge in front of the soldiers, seeming to fight them, and they were shooting at him as hard as they could. It looked as if Big Nose was trying to fight and hold back the soldiers in order to help someone ahead of him to get away. The decoys led the army unit up and over Lodge Trail Ridge, and out into the spine of land that ran off to the north. The horse soldiers pulled ahead and left the foot soldiers slogging along behind, the eager troopers chasing, chasing, chasing the young warriors out along the ridge and down towards Pino Creek. The decoys splashed across the, tr- the creek, then turned and rode back to the oncoming soldiers, weaving in and out amongst themselves in a figure eight. It was a signal, and with it, hell burst upon Lieutenant Grumman and his men. Something around 1,500, maybe as many as 2,000 warriors had been lying in wait in the wooded and brush-choked ravines below Massacre Ridge, watching and listening as the white soldiers moved further and further into their trap. There must have been a terrifying moment of realization for Grumman's troopers as the horde of screaming warriors burst forth, arrows flying in swarms across the leaden December sky. The troopers turned and fled back south along Massacre Ridge. The Lakota warrior Fire Thunder, 16 years old at the time of the fight, recalled, 
I had a six-shooter that I had traded for, and also a bow and arrow. When the soldiers started back, I held the sorrel with one hand and began killing them with a six-shooter, for they came close to me. There were many bullets, but there were more arrows, so many that it was like a cloud of grasshoppers all above and around the soldiers, and our people, shooting across, hit each other. Two civilians, James Wheatley and Isaac Fisher, dismounted and with a handful of cavalrymen made a stand amongst a low pile of rocks at the northern terminus of the ridge. The frontier partisan fighters worked the levers of their Henry rifles furiously, pumping rounds into the seething mass of warriors all around them. Their intense fire must have staved off attack for a few precious moments of life, but the 16-shot tubular magazine had to be reloaded, leaving the riflemen vulnerable. The Cheyenne and Lakota warriors overwhelmed them at last and vented their rage at the losses inflicted by the fast, accurate rifle fire. The frontiersmen's faces were smashed into an unrecognizable pulp, and the warriors shot a hundred arrows into Wheatley's body. Grumman's men maintained tactical cohesion, or, or perhaps simply hedgehogged, as they moved north trying to link back up with Fetterman and his infantry. The Indians fighting mostly on foot in the snowy, icy terrain, closed with them and killed them in bunches. The troopers released their horses, perhaps hoping to divert their horse-crazy foe. Fire thunder. The soldiers were falling all the while they were fighting back up the hill, and their horses got loose. Many of our people chased the horses, but I was not after horses. I was after Wasichus, white men. Grumman probably died on the rise known as Massacre Hill. A handful of cavalrymen broke through the encircling warriors and made it to where Fetterman was attempting to rally his infantry among a pile of boulders. A contingent of mostly Miniconjou Lakota swept up the east slope of the ridge to assail the position, while the warriors who had dispatched the cavalry also moved in for the kill. The troopers fought hard, but they simply did not have the firepower to stave off the overwhelming numbers of their foe. Single-shot muzzle-loading muskets were turned into clubs in savage hand-to-hand fighting. Cartridges found on the rocky rise indicate that the remnant of the Spencer repeater-armed cavalry got off some fire before they were overrun. Battle mythology has it that Fetterman and his friend Captain Brown committed a mutual suicide at the last. Brown did have a pistol-caliber hole in his head when Fort Phil Kearney post-surgeon examined the bodies. But Fetterman died of a deep wound across the throat. Lakota oral history has it that the badass warrior, American Horse, who may have been one of the decoys that led Fetterman's command into the disaster, rode into Fetterman and knocked him down with a vicious swing of his war club. Then he jumped down from his horse and slashed the captain's throat open with his knife. In no more than 40 minutes, the Lakota, Cheyenne, Arapaho had rubbed out 81 men. Heavy firing had been heard from the fort, and then the firing died away. Colonel Carrington dispatched Captain Tenador Ten Ike with a relief party, but when they crested Lodge Trail Ridge and looked down to the north, it quickly became apparent that there was no command to relieve. The Massacre Ridge and Pinot Creek Valley were crawling with an astonishing number of Indians, stripping and mutilating the American dead and loading their own dead and wounded onto makeshift sleds. The warriors taunted the soldiers, bidding them to come on down and fight. Ten Ike was having none of that, and the warriors their bloodlust cooled in the plunging temperatures of an oncoming winter storm, dispersed and disappeared up Pinot Creek. Ten Eyck's soldiers slowly and cautiously descended Lodge Trail Ridge into a slaughterhouse scene of almost indescribable horror. 
Their comrades lay strewn dead along the ridge for almost a mile. The snow was churned to a red slush, and the troopers quickly came to realize that they were walking through the strewn entrails of men who they broke, had broken bread with just that morning. The mutilation of the troopers and civilians was grotesque, cataloged in excruciating detail in Carrington's report on the battle. Such mutilation has often been assumed to be a means of crippling the spirit of an enemy in the afterlife. Historian John Monnet, citing deep anthropological study on the subject, dismisses this notion. The mutilation of Fetterman's command was an expression of rage and insult, designed to terrorize. And it did. The remnants of the garrison at Fort Phil Kearney huddled behind their log palisades, stunned with grief and shock, and deathly afraid that Red Cloud's warriors would soon storm the fort and slaughter them all, man, woman, and child. Jim Bridger did not go out with Fetterman's command. It's not clear why. Most likely, it was because the patrol was considered a routine effort to relieve a wood train that was under attack, which had happened over and over again in the months leading up to what would become known as the Fetterman Massacre, and nowadays is just called the Fetterman Fight. There was no particular reason for Bridger to go out. And bear in mind, by this point, you know, he was a... Um, an old man who had worked very, very hard for months, and it was the depths of December, and uh, he may just not have, have felt up to it. The question is, could he have stopped the dash across Lodge Trail Ridge and into an ambush? And I would say almost certainly not. Modern research indicates that uh, the Cavalry commander, Lieutenant Grummond, uh, probably ran well ahead of Fetterman's command, chasing the decoys. Fetterman then felt obligated to cross Lodge Trail Ridge in his support. And I don't think anything would have stopped that momentum. Um, and uh, there's plenty of evidence that the officers weren't listening to Bridger in any case. So it would have made no difference at all had Bridger gone out with Fetterman's command, and he probably would have ended up as dead as the other 81 men who fell that day in the snow along Massacre Ridge. Bridger had advised against the use of the Bozeman Trail in favor of the safer Bridger Trail, and he had at every turn tried to advise the army officials that they were facing a very, very large coalition of Indians and that they were at extreme risk, and, uh, and he was ignored at every turn. In hindsight, as Colonel Carrington's wife Margaret noted, the events affirmed, quote, the value and integrity of Major Bridger and his statements. What became known as Red Cloud's War, or the Bozeman Trail War, ended in 1868, and it was a rare, clear victory for the native militants. 
1868 Treaty of Fort Laramie, the federal government agreed to evacuate all the forts along the Bozeman Trail, and the trail was closed to all traffic. The treaty guaranteed the Black Hills in what is now South Dakota to the Lakota as part of the Great Sioux Reservation and acknowledged Lakota and Cheyenne right of use of the Powder River Country, which was designated unceded territory. Now, despite conceding everything that Red Cloud and the other insurgent leaders demanded, the treaty was also a poison pill. Even though it was vast, the Great Sioux Reservation was still a reservation, and the government would, in the next decade, use its existence as a a means of declaring those outside of it, the people of Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, hostile. And more men would march and more men would die out on the high plains. Bridger would not be among them. His eyesight was failing, and, and he, he truly had exhausted himself in the service of the U.S. Army. And after 1868, he retired to West Point, where he would live out his days longing for his mountains. And he died there in Westport, Missouri, in 1881. Let's let biographer Jerry Ensler close out this tale of the great Jim Bridger. Bridger went west at 18 and lived among the Indians in the mountains. He had a sense of family when he traveled with the fur brigades. Then he married and had his own family with the flathead woman Cora, the Ute woman Chapita, and the Shoshone woman Mary. When he had to leave Fort Bridger, his only permanent home in the west, he settled in Westport, Missouri but he also lived on the road as a scout for more than a dozen expeditions. When he wasn't guiding, he often found a bunk at Forts Laramie, Phil Kearney, and C.F. Smith. All of Bridger's life, he had searched for home. In that journey, he found America and helped shape it. As must be obvious, I I relied very heavily on Jerry Ensler's excellent and brand new biography of Jim Bridger, the first in about 50 or 60 years. It's titled Jim Bridger, Trailblazer of the American West. And if this podcast has piqued your interest in the great mountain man and scout, I highly recommend that you get a hold of of the biography. It's going to stand certainly for, for the next 50 years and probably forever as the definitive Jim Bridger biography. And this podcast would have been a very, very different animal without it. So uh, great appreciation to Jerry Ensler, a fantastic piece of of research and and writing. And uh, lay down some clues and get you a copy. So I want to thank all of you who, uh, who listen and support this podcast. As promised, we're heading next off to Southern Africa and uh, I am doing some research on the early boar hunters in Southern Africa. And uh, these are men that, that uh, Jim Bridger would have recognized instantly as kindred spirits. Uh, looking forward to putting out uh, that next podcast sometime in the month of, of August. And uh, again, I I greatly appreciate everybody who has supported the podcast via our Patreon page. The link to that will be in the show notes. 
And most of all, to all of you who have listened to this podcast and recommended it to friends, it's it's a lot of fun to sit around in the electronic campfire and and remember these great old frontiersmen and, and the wild and adventurous and dangerous lives they led. So thanks for listening. We'll see you down the trail.